Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to do what some of you think is the scariest thing that you could ever do in church, what others of you think is the most exciting thing you could ever do in church. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Some of you hear that and you think, oh, no, I never want to study the book of Revelation. The end time scares me. Some of you hear that and you think, I want you to preach from the book of Revelation every Sunday for the rest of your life because it gets me excited about the end. Turn to the book of Revelation, open up your Journey Church International app, or grab your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. I had a friend tell me when I started our church, he said, Christian, if you really want to get the community's attention, uh, that your church is there, he said, just predict the end of the world and have your people publicly prepare for it all together. And I said, say what? And he said, predict the end of the world and have your church publicly prepare for it. Put it on their social media, their Facebooks. On the day that it's coming, have a party at your church. Nobody will believe you, but everyone will be watching just in case because the world is curious about the end and no one wants to miss it. No one wants to not be ready for it. We actually have an entire book in our Bible that helps us learn about what's coming in the end times, but it's actually less exciting and more impactful than we think when we really read through it. Revelation 1.1 is where we're going to start today. And for the next eight weeks, we'll be in this book. Before we dig in, could you kind of just bow your heads, close your eyes, take a deep breath. And could you just pray this prayer to God from your heart to his God speak for your servant is listening. This is not my sermon to you that we're going to be reading. It's Jesus message for you. So would you just pray, Lord, speak for your servant is listening. God, we recognize the word of God is holy. We recognize it as divine. We recognize it as your message for us, and we receive it that way. Speak to us, Lord. We're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 1.1 says this, The revelation from Jesus Christ, you might circle that word revelation, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, I want to stop right there because the word revelation that we see in the the English Bible is the exact same Greek word that we get the word the apocalypse from. Today's Bible study time is titled the apocalypse. You say, why is that? Because the word revelation in Greek that we see here is the word apocalypsis. It's a word that means to uncover. It's a word that means to reveal. It's a word that means to disclose. When this word refers to a person, it means this is a person who becomes more clearly visible. So when we read the apocalypses from Jesus Christ, we are hearing Jesus tell us that he's getting ready to reveal some things about us, about himself that we don't know. We're hearing Jesus tell us that he's getting ready to uncover some things about him that we do not know. Every time this is used in the New Testament, this word apocalypsis, it refers to something that was once hidden that now has been revealed. We are going to, in Revelation, uncover some hidden things about Jesus that maybe we did not know before so that we can see him better. So the apocalypse in context of Revelation chapter 1, is just the revealing of who Jesus is the way he wants you to know him. We continue in Revelation 1. We'll start at verse 1 again. The revelation, the apocalypsis from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Here is the letter, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace 
and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's Day, that's Sunday, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In January of this year, a couple was taking a walk on a beach in Australia, and they came across this bottle that they saw laying in the sand, and the wife thought that would look really cool cleaned up and on our mantle, so they took it home, they cleaned it up, they dumped the sand out of it, and inside the sand rolled up about the size of a cigarette was a little piece of paper. They enrolled the piece of paper, they let it dry out, and when they let the piece of paper dry out, they were able to see on this piece of paper that it had been written on June 12, 1886, by a German naval captain, and they found out that the German Navy in June of 1886 was sending ships all over the world, and they were dumping thousands of bottles in oceans so they could study ocean currents so they could more effectively get their crafts around, and inside were messages saying, we are the German Navy, we are studying ocean currents, please let us know where this bottle washes up, send it back to us with the date and the time so that we can know where this ocean current from this point flows. Thousands of bottles were dumped into the sea, hundreds were found but the last one had been returned in 1934 until this one, which became, according to Guinness's World Book of Records, the oldest message in a bottle ever found. An old message in an old bottle that really doesn't mean a whole lot, but it's really pretty cool to look at. The next eight weeks, we will be studying an older message. It is not in a bottle. It's in the Bible, and it is very important for all of us. The messages dumped overboard by the German ship were trying to help people understand where the ocean currents would take you. The message dumped out of heaven in Revelation chapter 1 is trying to help you understand where God wants to take you. In the next eight weeks, we'll be in a series called Letters from Jesus, reading the seven letters that John wrote down on behalf of Jesus for the churches of Asia Minor, but also for you and I spiritually, all the churches, all the Christians of people who would be alive until Jesus comes back. Why is the book of Revelation important to us? Well, one, because everyone that I know, my Christian friends, my non-Christian friends, my not yet Christian friends, all of them would like to know more about Jesus. All of them want to understand him a little more, All of them would like to understand what he did, why he did it, if he was really real. I don't know anyone who says, I don't care to know anything more about Jesus. Revelation teaches us things about Jesus we don't know yet. But Revelation also blesses us. And I don't know about you, but if somebody's handing out blessings and they have the ability to really bless you, I'll take it. Revelation 1 verse 3, I don't know if you saw it, says that you can be blessed by studying the book of Revelation. See it in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That'll be me the next few weeks. And blessed are those who hear it 
and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. That could be you maybe. But here's what I want you to know. If the time was near 2,000 years ago, it's really near today. And if there is such thing as an end times blessing, I don't just want one. I'll take two or three or however many there are to give. If there's such thing as an apocalyptic blessing from heaven, I want it. And Revelation says that I can have it if I'll study and hear and take to heart and apply what the book of Revelation teaches us. So we understand from Revelation chapter 1 before we dig into the message that there are a few prerequisites for an apocalyptic blessing. If you're here and you say, one day I believe my life is going to end even if I don't believe the whole world will end, and when my life ends, when when the end is near, I want to be ready and I want to be blessed, then this is a book you want to know things about. And if you want to get prepared to be blessed, you have to have the prerequisites for an apocalyptic blessing. What are those? John shows us two in Revelation chapter 1. Number one, first you have to have a spirit to receive. You have to have a spirit to receive. That means you have to have a heart to hear. You have to listen not just with your ears, but with your heart. You have to have a spirit to receive. Look at John's spirit in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He says, I, John, your brother and your companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We see in verse 11 the command for the rest of the book. Here's the command. I'm going to give you a letter. Write it down. Send it to these seven churches. The rest of the book is him being obedient to that command. We are going to study those letters the next seven weeks. But I always like to see, I'm just kind of a tangible learner, so if I can not only hear that a a city has a letter written to it, but I can know where that city is, it just makes more sense in my mind. And you know, actually, where these letters are written to. Now, some of you are wondering, Christian, why is there a TV beside you on stage? Let me tell you why there's a TV beside me on stage, specifically for those of you who are listening and watching online right now. We have sometimes up to 350 mobile devices that live stream our services on a Sunday. And all they see is a picture of a talking head. They never get to see the maps, the charts, the graphs. They don't get the full church experience. You say, who are those people? They're missionaries. They're moms with sick kids. They're families that have just had babies. Um, They're people whose kids are playing sports out of town. They're families who have had to move out of the country for business. They are people who are a part of our church, but they're not in our city and they're not able to be here, but they want to be at church. Some of you who are watching today, we want you to get the full experience of our church. We consider you a part of our congregation, even though you're not in these seats. We also last year had more than 30,000 people who watched a sermon between Sundays, which means they logged onto our website And watched a sermon. They again don't see anything that you see, but we consider them a part of our church. When you're too busy to be here on a Sunday, but you try to catch up during the week, we want to give you the exact same experience everyone gets. So allowing us to have a TV that shows the people who are watching online what you see in house just allows the learning experience to be enhanced. Plus, I always wanted to kind of be a weather guy, and this gives me the opportunity (laughs) to show you that it looks like we got clear skies over the uh, Mediterranean basin unless the green i think those are mountains not clouds um 
But where, where we're talking about in Revelation chapter 1 is the Mediterranean basin. You know this. Like if, if you've ever looked at a globe, if you've looked at a map, you, you know this area. Israel's down here. You see Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Greece, Rome. Like you, you understand the Mediterranean basin. This is what it looked like in the days of the New Testament. Go to the next one, guys, if you would, because the church started here. The church started in the Mediterranean basin. These are all the mission trips that the apostle Paul took from the early church, starting in Jerusalem and going through the ancient world. The heartbeat of Christianity was the Mediterranean basin and very specifically the heartbeat the heartbeat of Christianity was in Western Turkey. This is specifically written to seven cities in Western Turkey that Rome set up to give Roman decrees to the entire world. This is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. This was a postal route set up by Rome. Why was it there? Rome, when they issued an edict, wanted the entire world to hear it. They would send it to all the major cities. Athens was the last major city really connected to kind of the European Union. To get the news to Asia back then, they would have to sail across, get to Ephesus. The Romans knew if they hit these seven cities, the rest of the world would hear what was happening. Jesus knew if he could hit these seven cities, the rest of the world would hear his revelation, see who he was, made visible in areas that they didn't understand him yet. And John wrote this letter from this little island called Patmos right here. You say, who was John? What was he doing on Patmos? John had been the pastor of the church at Ephesus. That's where he had pastored, a church that the apostle Paul had started, and then Timothy had pastored, and eventually Paul pastored. But he was currently on the island of Patmos. You say, was he on sabbatical too? Was he on vacation out in the Mediterranean? No, he wasn't on vacation. He was in prison. And he was in prison after surviving on death row. John's story went like this. They were killing anyone who personally knew Jesus, Because in the Roman emperor, you were not allowed to say anyone was God but Caesar. So when the apostles say, no, I had a friend named Jesus, and he was God and proved it by dying and raising from the dead, they said, yeah, you can't say that. So they had already killed all the other disciples. They had martyred most of the Christian church in Rome, but John was still alive and he was pastoring. So they went to John and they said, you can't say that anymore. And he said, I'm going to keep preaching. So they put him in prison on death row and they tried to kill him. We learned through history that they tried to kill him by dipping him entirely into a into a cauldron of boiling oil. If you've ever been making bacon and had oil kind of bounce up and hit you on the arm, you can imagine how bad that would hurt to have your entire body dipped into this oil in order to kill him. He came up and he was still alive. I'm sure he was horribly disfigured, but he was alive. And they said, we can't send him back as a disfigured surviving martyr. He'll be even more effective for Jesus. So they sent him to Patmos. What was Patmos? It was a prison work camp. It was the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. Patmos was 60 miles off the coast of Turkey. You saw where it was on the map. It's only 13 square miles. It's actually a tiny little island. There's not one tree on the entire island of Patmos. It's 10 miles long at its longest point. It's six miles wide at its widest point. It's only 800 feet high at its highest point. For those of you who have been to Israel with me, you could fit Patmos in the, in the Sea of Galilee, and it would be completely underwater. You would not even know it was there. That's how small it was. Lee Summit is more than four times bigger than the island of Patmos. It was just the Alcatraz of its days where they sent people to die. And John said, I was there for two reasons. I was there because I was teaching the word of God, which would have been the Old Testament scriptures in his day, Genesis through Malachi. I was there because I was teaching the word of God and I was talking about Jesus. John said, I was on the island of Patmos because I was teaching the word of God and I was giving testimony. I was telling my stories about Jesus and they put me here. 
And what was he doing there on the island? He said, I was pursuing Jesus with everything that I have. Look at verse 10. John said, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. If you have a pen, you might underline those three words, in the spirit. I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It's interesting that John would describe himself as being in the spirit. It's not a phrase used a lot in scripture, being in the spirit. Jesus told us in John 16, we would rely on the spirit. He would help us learn how to walk with God, follow God. Uh, The apostle Paul told us in Galatians chapter five, that we would walk in the spirit. Like that, that would help us learn to look like Jesus a little bit. Luke told us in the book of Acts that the disciples, the church was directed by the spirit. They were kind of driven by the spirit. The apostle Peter told us in first Peter that the only way your life can be changed is by the spirit. But we don't hear a whole lot of people just say, I was in the spirit. What what does that mean to be in the spirit? Maybe we need to ask John. Because John in his gospel letter, talking about all of his instances with Jesus. And John chapter 17 was close enough to Jesus to hear him praying on the night he was betrayed. And he heard Jesus pray that his followers would be in him. And here's what he prayed in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. He said, God, my prayer is not for them alone. That meant the 12 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That means us. That all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. John heard Jesus pray that his followers would be in him. And he described himself as being in the spirit. It meant he had a heart at the moment that was open to Jesus. It means he had a heart at the moment that wanted to be overtaken by Jesus. It meant that he had this desire to become more like Jesus so that by becoming like Jesus, he could get closer to God. John said, this is who I am on this island. I'm relying on God. I'm walking with God. I'm still being driven by God. I'm still trying to be changed by God. This man who I'm sure physically had been changed forever on the outside said, I'm still trying to be trying to be changed on the inside. He's worshiping. He's praying. He's desperately seeking God in his life. And he says, he hears this trumpet blast right behind him. You can imagine how that would have made us jump to hear a trumpet blast in the middle of our prayer and worship session on an island all by himself. And as the trumpet sounds, John doesn't flinch. He opens his heart and he begins to receive. When in all honesty, he probably should have had a spirit to retreat. I mean, let's think about John for a minute. Let's think about John for a minute because all of his ministry partners are dead. The rest of the disciples, they're all dead. Most of them have been martyred. Jerusalem, his hometown, it's gone. The Romans, 20 years earlier, have destroyed the city. They've destroyed the temple. There's no more Jewish worship in Jerusalem. Mary who remember when Jesus was on the cross, he told John, take care of Mary. Mary had moved in with John and lived with him. She has died by now. People who were claiming to be Christians were kind of changing their mind and walking away from the faith. More than that, people who were in churches that he had started, according to his letters, were basically sending back this message to John. We don't know if we believe you anymore. It's just really hard to believe that Jesus was who you said he was. So some of his followers were kind of walking away. He'd been arrested. He'd been nearly killed. He'd been exiled. Now he was in a prison camp and he was seeking after Jesus. Can I ask you really honestly, what would your heart have looked like in this moment? I mean, we have a bad week and think about running away from Jesus. John's had a pretty bad few years here. And here he is running to Jesus, not away from Jesus. 
The book of Revelation tells us that we can all the next eight weeks receive this spiritual, supernatural, apocalyptic blessing, but not if you're running from Jesus. Only if you're running to Jesus. John, after all of this, still relying on God. After all this, still walking with God, still driven by God, still being changed by God, still worshiping God, still praying to God, still seeking God in a spirit to receive. And if we want to receive, we've got to look at everything happening in our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we have to understand that our spirit to receive has to be greater than our spirit to retreat. Our spirit to receive what God has for us has to be greater than our spirit of retreat because of what life has for us right now. But only we can choose which of those things we're going to have. There is a blessing for those of us the next eight weeks who study this book with a spirit to receive it. But if we're kind of running away from God, that's not going to happen. You say, how do you know that? History. I know that because of history. Because Jesus sent this message to these seven churches at the heartbeat of the Christian world. You say, did they receive it? You tell me whether or not they received it. If we look at the map again, this is current day. When you look at Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and Turkey and Libya and Algeria and Tunisia, does this look like the center of the Christian world today? Is this the heartbeat of Christianity today? Because if they had received this letter with open spirits, this would still be the heartbeat of Christianity today. But no, this is not only not the heartbeat of Christianity today, this is the heartbeat of a whole other major world religion today. Why? Because they chose not to listen. They were already drifting from God. According to what we're going to read the next seven weeks, all these churches here were already drifting from God. And eventually they dried up. And eventually they died and Jesus is not, he's not around much here anymore. But this is not the map that will help us the next seven weeks. See, the map that you have to be aware of the next seven weeks is this map. And you have to ask yourself, where is Jesus on my spiritual journey right now? See, at some point, maybe God has made a missionary trip into the center of your life. At some point in your past, our maps all look like the map of the New Testament days. There's all kinds of spiritual journeys. There's mission trips, and there's servings, and there's a time we prayed and God answered us, and then there's a time we prayed and God didn't answer us. We've all got a spiritual journey written on our heart. But if we could put a word on your heart, scratch that. If Jesus could put a word on your heart, If Jesus could get a marker and write one word describing the condition of your heart today, would it be receptive? My heart is open to anything that Jesus has for me. I just want to receive. Or would his word be drifting, like the churches of Revelation? I mean, if you were to be really honest, would Jesus' word for you be kind of drifting right now? Would Jesus' word for some of you, his words, be dried up? I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, former spiritual marks, but right now it's kind of dried up. Would Jesus' word for your heart be dead? Just kind of dead spiritually right now. If so, here's the good news for you. I know someone who excels in bringing dead things back to life. So even if your heart is dead this morning, it can move to a heart that has to receive. But only you can choose whether or not you have a heart that's open to receive. Last week we talked about the spirit of Christianity being a spirit of obedience before it even knows the commands. I gave all kinds of analogies last week. That you know that means this and that and that and I gave a political one. 
I, I said this, a, you know, a spirit of obedience before it knows the commands. We, we talked about people going to Jesus saying, here's who I was before you. What do I do now? And I said, you know, everyone who was a Republican before they became a Christian should say, okay, I've always been a Republican, but what does Jesus want me to do now? Everyone who was a Democrat before they became a Christian should say, I've always been a Democrat, but what do I do now? People who have never voted in their life and don't even care said, that's how I've always been, but Jesus, what do you want me to do now? It was not a political statement. It was just an attitude of the heart. And I talked to one of our people who, you know, was, was sincerely but angrily questioning that segment of my message last week. He said, are you telling me, I've always voted, are you telling me that as a Christian I need to change the way I vote? And I said, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not telling you you need to change the way you vote. I'm telling you you need to change the reason you vote. So here's what I want you to do. Go find out what you vote for and give me a biblical reason for all those there. Give me a reason that God is passionate for the things you're passionate about. And he said, I don't need the Bible to tell me how to vote. And I said, that's what I'm talking about. Someone who says... Here's how I'm going to live my life, and I've got Jesus. But I don't care what he has to say about this part. If you only give Jesus authority over the areas that you're already heading in anyway, he's not in charge, you are. It's only when we let Jesus say, no, 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 you are this way, I need you going this way, that he truly has authority, a spirit to receive. So do you have, if Jesus had the marker today, is the word on your heart receptive? Just whatever God says to me. I want to do, I want to be led by him and his heart. That is one of the prerequisites for this apocalyptic blessing that we're going to study. And if you have a spirit to receive, even if your heart feels dead today, it can come alive the next seven weeks. If you will have a spirit to receive. And number two, if you will live within the proximity for promise. See, there's two prerequisites that we see in Revelation chapter one. One is the spirit to receive. My life was going miserable, John says, but I was I was in the spirit. I was still pursuing Jesus, and he spoke to me. But we also see in John this proximity for promise. Say, what does that mean? It means John was always close to Jesus. John is the disciple who's always close to Jesus. Now, listen closely because I'm getting ready to give you a test, but the answer to every question is John. So I just want you to know, the answer to every question is John. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I'm going to have you answer out loud. The answer to every question is John. You cannot miss a question on this test if you can say John. All the answers are John. Did you know how close John was to Jesus? Did you know that only three disciples witnessed Jesus personally raise a synagogue ruler named Jairus' daughter from the dead? Guess who one of them was? John. Yeah, it was John. Did you know only three disciples were close enough to Jesus when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration to see Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus? Guess who one of those three disciples was? John. Did you know only one disciple sat right next to Jesus at the Last Supper? He only had one who was sitting right next to him. Guess who was sitting right next to Jesus at the Last Supper? John. Did you know there was only one disciple who was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and sweating like drops of blood because he was so intense in his spirit. Only one person close enough to him who heard what he was praying and who wrote it down. Guess who that was? John. Some of you are getting a little lazy on this test. Finish with me now, okay? Finish. Did you know there was one disciple who followed Jesus into the high priest courtyard because he wasn't afraid to go where Jesus was and his family personally knew him? Guess who that disciple was? John he took Peter with him, but he was the one who went first. Did you know there was only one disciple close enough to the cross for Jesus to personally speak with him? Guess who that disciple was? Guess who the first disciple to the grave was? Guess who the disciple was that followed Jesus and Peter as Jesus was telling Peter, listen, I know you failed. I need you to get back in the game. Guess who that disciple was? 
He's always around Jesus. Like he was just always, like he was the, have you ever had a, a, an annoying little kid when you were in high school that just used to follow you around and he was just always there? That was John. We know he was the youngest of the disciples. He was everywhere. Wherever Jesus was, John was. As a matter of fact, people who hated Jesus and hated the Christian movement knew this about John. Well, he was always with Jesus. When John and Peter oversaw the healing of a guy on the temple steps and they brought him in before the Sanhedrin and said, you can't heal people and you can't talk about Jesus. And they said, okay, that's what you say, but Jesus told us to heal people and talk about him, so we're going to choose him. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, but they took note they'd been with Jesus. Like, here's the fact everyone knew about John. John was close to Jesus. Question, how many people know that about you? How many people, when they think about your life, they're like, oh, so-and-so. Man, they, like, they are always around Jesus. Oh, so-and-so. I'm sure they're doing something with Jesus. Oh, so-and-so. Oh, yeah, they're always talking about Jesus. That was John. John lived in such close proximity to Jesus that he was always around the promises of God. My question to you is, are you? My second question is, if you're not, do you have a plan to be? My son's 17. We had our last discipleship meeting between he and I before he went back to school this summer. I gave him a list of things to read and bring, and one of those things was I said, I need to know your plan for staying close to Jesus this school year. Summer's over, school's starting, football's starting, life's getting busy. I need you to bring me your plan for staying close to Jesus this school year. You have to bring it to me, and here's what I want you to bring. I want you to think about the times this summer you felt closest to God. What were those things that made you feel that way, and how do you keep, do, how do you keep doing them? So we went out for lunch for our discipleship time. Um, and I just said, what are you going to do? We had one, what this summer kept you closest to Jesus? And he was like, youth, youth camp and the mission trip to Guatemala. I said, all right, what happened there that you have to keep doing? What, what's going to help you stay close to Jesus this year? And here was his plan. He's 17. He said, I've got to, start, I've got to read my Bible and journal every day. I want to figure out a way to listen to worship music a little bit every day. I've got to go to youth group on Wednesday, even when sports and homework keep me really busy. I've got to keep serving on Sunday because serving helped me this summer when I was in Guatemala. I want to memorize some verses every month, and I want to keep having my discipleship meetings with you. I told him, if you bring the plan, I will help you. You tell me what you need to stay close to Jesus, and I am all in. I will help you make that happen. What's your plan? What's your plan to stay close to Jesus? Or maybe let me flip the question. When was the last time you were really, really close to Jesus? What was going on then that's not going on now? Next week in our small groups, our first small group question of the semester is this. As a group... Come up with a plan to stay close to Jesus. Everyone speak into it. Everyone agree to it. And for this semester, everyone try to follow it and hold each other accountable. Let's just all really stay close to Jesus this year. That's like as a church, let's all really stay close to Jesus this year. What would be the things in your plan if you did that? Our Activate podcast is back and rolling this week. It'll release today at noon. Pastor Brandon and I discussed this week on the podcast, what are some things that should be included in a plan to stay close to God? Because we want our church to live within the proximity of the promise. Here's a question you should, have, you should be asking. It's a good question. Christian, how close do I have to stay to Jesus to receive the promise? Great question. Can I miss church every now and then? Yeah, probably. Do I have to read the Bible every day? Probably not. Do I have to listen to worship music every day? Probably not. But can you never do those things? Probably not. Christian, how close do I have to stay to Jesus to receive the promise? Here's the answer. I think you're going to like it. Close enough to be in a shadow. You gotta stay close enough to be in a shadow, at least according to Psalm 91 1. 
How close do I have to stay to Jesus to live within the proximity of the promise that he offers? Well, you've got to be close enough to him to stay within the shadow. Psalm 91.1 says it this way, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. The promises of God were always seen in the temple, the presence of God, the protection of God. Whoever wants to dwell in the promises of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So you got to be close enough to be in the shadow. Now, here's the good news. On sunny days, shadows get long, you can be a little further away. Probably still be okay. But when it's raining and it's storming, you better be right up on Jesus. Because on those days, you don't even cast a shadow. And what we find is the opposite. On sunny days, we're not even aware of who Jesus is. And on cloudy days, we're angry at him and we don't think he can help at all. And the reality is, if we will learn to stay within his shadow, that's pretty close. Can I miss a day and be in Jesus' shadow? Yeah. Can I miss a week? Eh, you probably shouldn't. Can I miss a couple weeks of church on vacation doing things? Yeah. Can I miss a month? Eh, probably shouldn't. Can I listen to music other than Christian music? Of course. Carrie Underwood doesn't sing Christian music. I mean, you can do that every now and then. But should I, should I never listen to Christian music? Eh, probably not. Like, like we just got to feel what it feels like to stay in the shadow, pretty close to Jesus. See, that's the goal of the next seven weeks, to get so up close and so personal with Jesus that just by being near him, we experience the blessing of the book of Revelation. 132 years ago, a German naval officer dumped thousands of bottles in the ocean filled with messages that really mean nothing to us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus dumped a message onto an island in the Mediterranean. Not in a bottle, in the Bible. That means everything to us. It means life to us. It means eternity to us. But we have to have hearts to receive it. And we've really got to have a plan to stay close to Jesus so we can lock in on what he wants to become visible in our lives. See, revelation is not just the unveiling of the end. It's the revealing of Jesus. And it's the uncovering of the condition of our heart and how those two come together. What does the map of your heart say about you spiritually right now? Not all the crisscross lines of the past, but today. What does the map of your heart say? Is Jesus at the center? Is he on the fringes? Is he on the page at all right now? Because if we can answer this question with a spirit to receive, and if we can move forward trying to stay close to Jesus... I believe we can experience what Jesus promised in 1-3, a blessing on our life as we seek to know him better. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?